This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. It's really a, a, a special pleasure to have Steve Luxemburg uh, here with us this evening uh, for the, the world premier bookstore event um, for his new book. The term veteran journalist uh, must have been invented for, for guys like Steve. He's been at the trade for, for more than 40 years, uh, the first 11 with the Baltimore Sun and the past 30 plus uh, with the Post. When he came to the Post in 1985, it was to serve as, as Bob Woodward's deputy, overseeing the investigative and special projects staff. He succeeded Bob a few years later as head of that staff, and then in 1996 became editor of the Sunday Outlook section. Uh, and in his uh, current role as associate editor, he's um, continued to work now and then on, on special uh, projects. But with editors, uh, you never really know sometimes if they can write <laughs> uh, until they actually do. And it's clear that Steve certainly can. His new book, Separate, about one of the U.S. Supreme Court's worst decisions ever in Plessy versus Ferguson. In that case, in 1896, the court upheld a Louisiana law requiring railroad companies to provide equal but separate coaches for white and black passengers. The court ruled, in effect, that segregation is not per se discrimination. For more than half a century afterward, that decision stood as a basis for a system of laws affirming racial segregation and inequality. Not until 1954, in uh, Brown v. Board of Education, did the Supreme Court go against Plessy and declare that school segregation violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. As Steve tells us in his prologue, while the Plessy ruling drew little attention at the time, its harmful effects lasted longer than any other civil rights decision in American history. Steve's expert researching skills are very much in evidence uh, in his book. So are his talents as an engaging storyteller. He looks back at Plessy through the eyes of several key people uh, who were involved in the case, uh, people whom you're going to hear about now as we welcome Steve Luxemburg. Brad is one of the few people that I wished I had edited more. <laughs> you know, the book is coming out today on Lincoln's birthday, and one of my friends teased me that it was, this was great product placement. Uh, but I come by this honestly because Lincoln has a role in the book, uh, and you'll hear about that in a little bit. Um, when I was writing Separate, and it grew to be the doorstop that it is, <laughs> I was worried, of course, because in this marketplace, books that are longer than 212 pages are, are, have, a, have a hard road. But my wife, who's sitting over here, she, she came home one day and said, you're okay. NPR says big history is back. <laughs> that was, of course, three years ago, so it's probably come and gone several times since then. But I'm holding on to that as being a reason that I wrote this long book. All right, so this is a big night for me, uh, and not just because my book has come out, but because for the last six years, and some of you can confirm this, every time we have a political conversation, 
I would interject by saying, well, in the 19th century, and I began to get sneered at. Well, tonight I'm talking about the 19th century, and if you don't like it, too bad. This is... All right, so I need to, Brad gave you some idea of this ruling, 1896 is when the ruling is, but I want you to think of separate as a parallel set of stories. So it is about the people who were caught up in the case, the justices who decided it, the lawyers who brought it, but it's also about the resistors who had been opposing separation. It's very important. Separation was the word in the 19th century. They didn't know the word segregation. If you picked up any newspaper, you would see the word separation and not segregation. This is a story of those two parties because you really can't have one without the other. If you don't have the resistance and you don't have the lawsuits, then there are no cases to rule upon. This is a book, in my view, of what I would call a book of understanding, not of judgment. It's easy enough to say today that everybody in the 19th century was racist. Not only isn't it true that everyone was racist, but it doesn't help us understand the milieu that was involved there. We talk today about the civil rights movement, and without we don't need to add the civil rights movement of the 1960s, because that's immediately what we think. We don't know that there was a civil rights movement in 1860. There was a, in the 1860s, and they were the result of the end of the Civil War and the three Reconstruction Amendments that followed. So those amendments are the 13th, 14th, and 15th, the abolishment of slavery, the creation of equal protection under the laws and granting of citizenship rights to blacks, and the voting rights for black men. Black men, not black women, not white women, black men. Those three uh, amendments are, in my opinion, a revolution. They are a completely different constitution than the one we started with. In the original constitution, that's why I don't really understand this discussion about originalism. Originalism what? The one in 1789 or the one in 1867? The, the new constitution was in, on the question of race was the opposite. We had embedded slavery into our Constitution, the divisions between North and South in the form of the three-fifths of a person that is in that Constitution. We then jettison that, and we say that we are going to have equality for all. It doesn't happen right away, but it is a revolution. And it creates a very different kind of turmoil in the country in the 19th century. Now, it's very hard for us today to imagine the 19th century. Not only was there no Instagram, or cell phones, or computers, but there was a different understanding of politics and government. So today, if we say the 14th Amendment, even if you can't recite the exact words, we understand that the 14th Amendment is equal protection for all under the law, and that the federal government has inserted itself into every part of the country to enforce the 14th Amendment. The problem is, is that in the 19th century, they did not accept that. In the 20 years after the uh, ratification of the amendment, the Supreme Court kept having a narrower and narrower view of the 14th Amendment. And so when a case like Plessy came before the court, they did not see it in 14th Amendment terms. Now, the lawyers for Plessy wanted to, them to see it that way, and the court rejected it. So let me talk a little bit about these characters so you have some grip on them. And I'm not going to talk very long because I really like to get questions. 
I think in some ways that elicits a better talk than, than just uh, me standing up here. But there was the justice who wrote the decision. His name was Henry Billings Brown. He was New England born. He was born in Massachusetts, raised in Connecticut, and went to Michigan as a young man. He's an entirely a northerner. He ends up writing the awful decision. Hold that for a minute. On the other side, the only dissenter in the case, it was a seven to one case, and for those of you who can count, I have trouble with that. That means one justice didn't participate, seven to one. The one dissenter was John Marshall Harlan of Kentucky. He comes from a border state. It's very much divided during the Civil War. Harlan himself was a pro-slavery candidate in 1859. He raises a Union reg regiment, though, in 1861 to preserve the Union, but states in an open letter to the Louisville paper that he will not fight against slavery. If it becomes a war to end slavery, he's out. He then goes on after the Civil War to become Kentucky's Attorney General, and in that role, he opposes those three Reconstruction Amendments. He says that they take away Kentucky's rights to decide these issues for themselves. By 1868, though, he's lost. He's lost because there's no place for a politician, that, that really was what he was, like him in Kentucky. He doesn't want to join the Democrats because they were the Confederates he fought against in the Civil War. He doesn't really want to join the Republicans because they're too progressive for him. But he ends up joining the Republicans and it contributes to a conversion in his life. And by 1877, when he's nominated to the court, he has renounced his uh, pro-slavery views and gone even further. He says he was wrong about that. He was wrong about the Reconstruction Amendments. He was what we would call today a flip-flopper. That's a joke. <laughs> he had evolved. He had changed. It was real. When he, when he was pro-slavery, that was real. And when he was anti-slavery, that was real, too. By 1877... Uh, when he joins the court, the court, this is not the Supreme Court that we're used to. These are, are men, they don't really think the Supreme Court is that great a job. They are not going to try to get on it the way, let's say, a Brett Kavanaugh, who made it the goal of his life. Uh, most of them would rather be the governor of a state or a senator or something. And they don't stay in the, jo the job, most of them, for a lifetime. But John Marshall Harlan did. He stayed in the, in the job until he died. And it was his calling. Uh, when he was writing a letter to uh, his law partner who had gone to Washington in 1870, he speculated about how the Supreme Court was the greatest job in the world. That was the way you could make a mark in one's life. And making a mark for Harlan, for Henry Billings Brown, for Albion Turget, the lawyer for Plessy, these men, these white men, they wanted to leave their mark in the world. Their ambition was not naked, but it was worn on their sleeve. They didn't have any embarrassment about it the way sometimes we do today. If you say, would you tell somebody you're ambitious? Does that sound like you're being a little too aggressive? Probably, probably is the case today, but not in the 19th century, not in this class of people. Now, the other characters are these resistors I talk about. The resistance to separation begins when? Well, probably begins in the South, right? That's where all the slavery was. Wrong. It begins in Massachusetts at the dawn of the railroad age on a car running from Boston to Salem. There are eight railroad companies operating in 18, the 1840s, the new passenger railways, and only three of them in Massachusetts decide to separate. 
three out of eight. So it was obviously not a universal thing. On those trains in 1841 were the abolitionists. Now, why were they there? Because they were going to their night meetings. Where else? And how did they get to their night meetings before? On horseback. So when the railroads come along, they are absolutely thrilled. The Eastern Railroad, running from Boston to Salem, not so thrilled to have white and black passengers together sitting in the white car. And so they grab the newest agent of the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society, a young uh, Frederick Douglass, who had just arrived from Maryland, and they escort him. Do you escort Frederick Douglass anywhere? They grab him, six men, and they pull him out of his seat, and he grips the seat so hard, he writes later in his memoirs, that he rips the seat off of its bolts and damages the seat, and he's thrilled. <laughs> These confrontations began to occur regularly, and the, ab the abolitionists recognize that in addition to every other issue that they're agitating about, they've got a new one. And so they begin to write petitions to the Massachusetts legislature asking for the end to separate cars. They want it banished to the receptacle of forgotten barbarisms. So when I'm researching, I'm looking for the, through the articles. And in 1838, October 12, I run across an article in the Salem Gazette. It is, as far as I could tell, and I don't know for sure, the very first use of the term Jim Crow to apply to a railroad car, to public transportation. And it's done as a kind of second reference, as if the train crew and the passengers and the readers all knew what they were talking about. It said there were two drunken white guys, sailors, and they were behaving so badly that they were told to go back to the refuse car or the Jim Crow car. So this is a century before we think of Jim Crow in the South those indelible images of separate bathrooms and separate, separate water fountains. This is 1838 in Massachusetts, and it's in the North. Now, why would the North be the birth of separation? Well, in the South, where you had enslaved people and their masters, you're not putting them in separate railroad cars. And the South was lagging way behind in passenger railroads anyway. But in the North, the question, where do I sit? was a very live one in states where, let's face it, there weren't very many people of color. I mean, Massachusetts, the, the 1840 census, there were fewer than 1% of the population were people of color. And yet they're putting them in separate cars. So the abolitionists start writing these petitions. And I went to the Massachusetts State Archives. And I asked to see one of these petitions, the one that had the most signatures. And they brought it out. And we unfolded it and we unfolded it, and we unfolded it to 14 feet long, more than 1,000 signatures. And I said to the archivist, could you please fold that back up, because I don't think I know how to do it. And she said, neither do I, and I left her to the, to the task. But this is the kind of agitation and resistance that's already occurring in the North. And if you look at the Plessy decision, the precedents that they cite, that Henry Billings Brown cites, are largely northern cases, not southern cases. One from Philadelphia, one from Massachusetts, another one from uh, Michigan, all cases from the north. So this is a 
shared history we have here. The racial separation in this country is not just a Southern problem, although the South bears a much greater shame than the North, it's a shared problem. So we come forward and we come to the great city of New Orleans. The Plessy case, how many people here know anything about the Plessy case? Anybody know what the color of Plessy is? What's Plessy's color? He's white. Somebody says white. One-eighth African-American. That's not right either, but it's close. That's what the court was told. One-sixteenth. Okay, let's, let's leave this behind. I'll tell you in a minute. Okay. What was he arrested for doing? Okay, I'll tell you that too. What was, what, what was, where, were, where did he come from? How old was he? We don't know anything about this man. All right, how many of the justices on the court, the 7-1 decision, how many came from the South and how many came from the North? out of the seven justices who ruled in favor of separation. Six were Northerners. All right, so let me tell you a little bit about Plessy. Plessy was a walk-on. He was a volunteer, a courageous volunteer, because he didn't know what was going to happen when he got arrested. But the arrest, if you see some plaques, if you go down uh, the south and you see descriptions of this case, you'll read harrowing stories about Plessy being ejected from the train and thrown off onto the side of the tracks. Not very many like that, but there are some of those accounts. It was an arranged arrest. He was not thrown off of any track. He was escorted quite politely. He went to jail. Jail was the plan. They needed to have him in jail in order to test the new 1890 separate railroad car act that Louisiana had passed. Now, this is a big change. We have Massachusetts railroads separating people, but in Louisiana we have the law telling railroads they must separate people. Louisiana was not the first state to pass that law. The first state was Tennessee with a kind of, let's call it a, a law that didn't really go very far. It sort of said if you separate, it should be equal, but it didn't require separation. The first state to require separation was Mississippi in 1889. Florida had passed an earlier law that, again, was kind of wishy-washy, but was basically trying to say we should separate the races. But Mississippi passes the law in 1889, and the Louisiana law is modeled after that law. And it has a very critical phrase in the beginning. It says that you must provide equal but separate accommodations to white and colored passengers. So what's the difference? Did you, did you pick up the difference there? It wasn't separate but equal. It was equal but separate. Now, why would that difference matter? I think it matters because they thought they were doing something progressive. Oh, yeah, we have separation. We all know that. But we're, we're requiring equality. Now, the, the, the Plessy lawyers thought this was a, a veneer, what Justice Harlan in his dissent called a thin disguise. They didn't really mean equality. The cars weren't equal. The treatment wasn't equal. But it says equal but separate. The phrase separate but equal does not appear in the Plessy majority opinion. This is the case that endorsed separate but equal. How could those words not appear? Where do they come from? Well, that research, which isn't in the book because I became curious about it afterwards, like why, why did that become part of our lexicon today? It's because of what the Supreme Court did in 1954 in Brown versus Board of Education. They called it separate but equal because by that time that had become the phrase. But those words themselves do not appear in the majority decision. They do appear in Harlan's dissent. 
and they were used at the time. So back to New Orleans, though. New Orleans is a city unlike any in the country. It was then, it is now. And that's because it started as a French and Spanish possession, takeover by the Americans in 1803. And when William Claiborne, the, the governor of Virginia, the, uh, from Virginia, arrives to be the provisional governor, he, he realizes he's got a very difficult problem on his hand. There are 6,000 in 1803, 6,000 free people of color. He doesn't know what to do with them. They have a militia. They have weapons. He writes to Madison, who's Secretary of State, and to Jefferson, the president, and he said, hey, guys, I got a problem here. There are 6,000 free people of color with weapons. What do, I, what do you want me to do? Well, <laughs> it takes a month for his letter to get there. It takes a month for it to get back, because the only way it can go is by boat. And the response is, you're on your own, buddy. And he doesn't quite know what to do. He doesn't want to offend them, because they have weapons. He doesn't want to cause any difficulty, but he also knows that what he has is something unlike the rest of the South. Well, he sort of finesses the problem. But by 1814, when 1812, 1813, when Andrew Jackson wants to fight in the Battle of New Orleans, he needs those free people of color because he doesn't have enough manpower. And he issues a proclamation giving them all kinds of promises, which he may or may not intend. I mean, he's not really in charge of, of their rights. But what it creates is an expectation that over the course of the generations, this group of free people of color are going to get their rights. And they don't. I describe them in the book as a sandwiched middle layer between the white population and the enslaved population. And by 1890, after a number of attempts to get their rights, they're not very happy. And they form a committee. The committee, this is not a very felicitous title if I were running a committee, the committee to test the constitutionality of the separate car law. It's on their letterhead. And they decide they're gonna bring a case. They announce it in the newspaper. They say they're going to make a test. And they go out and they find a couple of volunteers. They do one case, it doesn't go very, very quite the way they want. And then they have a second case and that's where Homer Plessy comes into the picture. Now, the lawyers for Plessy and the committee decided that they wanted to argue certain things. And the only way they could do that was to create the conditions that they needed. And what they needed for one of their arguments was for, for the volunteer, in this case Plessy, to be white enough to pass for white, to be fair-skinned enough to pass for white, or as I write in the book, fair-skinned enough to cause confusion. Because they wanted to argue that how the heck is a conductor who is charged with enforcing this law and who has given, been given the powers of the police and the judge to declare somebody's race and either reject them or arrest them, how the heck are they going to decide your color in New Orleans, which has every shade of, of color under the sun, if they can't tell a person's race? So there's a very funny moment. The newspapers in New Orleans in covering the Plessy arrest, which they didn't cover very much, the, one of the, the white newspapers said that the conductor came up to Plessy and said, are you a colored man? And Plessy said, yes. And the black newspaper said, are you a white man? And Plessy said, yes. <laughs> He actually said no. But I say that this is New Orleans. It's not a contradiction. It's just the way it is. That's the conditions that exist as the case is coming 
to, to the Supreme Court. They do manage through a lot of cleverness to get it there. It's not easy to get a case to the Supreme Court. But nobody expects, the newspapers don't expect, no one expects them to win. And they don't. And one of the sad things is, is that they're eager to get Frederick Douglass. Remember, Frederick Douglass is the start of this. He's resisting arrest, uh, resisting ejection in, in 1841. They want his imprimatur. And they write to him, this committee does, and Douglass won't give it to them. Now, I don't know why Douglas didn't want to give it to them. I only know what Martinet, Louis Martinet, the head of the committee, wrote in his letters to Albion Turget, the lawyer for Plessy. But he is furious because he's gone to a convention of colored men, that was what it was called, in 1882 in Louisville. And he's listened to Douglas give this very stirring speech about how you can never give up. You can never stop fighting. You must always resist. And here he's doing what he thinks that Douglas has commanded him to do. And Douglas says no. He thinks that Douglas misunderstood. He want, thought we wanted his money. We don't want his money. We just want his approval. Probably what Douglas thought was, hey, you guys, you mixed race guys are really not my constituency down there in New Orleans. I'm not agitating for white people. But also that it was a losing case and he didn't want to be on the side of the losing cause. That's the way that, that uh, the case is set up. The rulings, uh, they reject, the, the, Billings Brown and his uh, majority reject the 14th Amendment and decide that Louisiana, under its police powers, that is a term of art in the law, has the right to preserve law and order, and that part of that is to have a separate Railroad Car Act. Harlan, on the other side, says this is going to be a shameful day in this court's history. This decision is as bad as Dred Scott. Dred Scott being the ruling before the Civil War, 1857, that declared that blacks, free or not, could not be citizens. He sees what the baneful effects of Plessy are going to be. He predicts it, and he turns out to be right. But for 10, 20, 30 years after the decision, Plessy was not regarded as the case we see it as today. Carter Woodson, does anybody in here know who Carter Woodson is? Carter Woodson was the founding editor of the Journal of Negro History, the first scholarly journal to look at African-American history. It was founded in 1915. And in 1921, he wrote an essay about 50 years of Supreme Court rulings about citizenship rights. 50 years. 53-page essay. How many pages do you think he spent on Plessy? What, 10? Landmark case. Separate but equal. Two. He spent most of the essay, in terms of talking about one case, on the civil rights cases of 1883, which was the preceding set of cases that led to Plessy. And he understood that no Supreme Court case exists in isolation. All of them are preceded by something, and they lead to something. And so by 1930 and 40 and 50, the Supreme Court has cited Plessy several times as its precedent for a new ruling. So that by 1954, in Brown versus Board of Education, the Supreme Court had recognized that Plessy was the landmark case that we now consider it, and it declared it so in language that was way over the line. They said that the court had announced the decision of separate but equal in Plessy. I defy you to find an announcement of separate but equal in Plessy. It doesn't exist. But the Supreme Court has told us that it exists, so therefore it is. They're right in, in the, uh, this is a bigger truth, 
but it's not there. That's a fascinating little sidelight. That's my story for tonight. The rest of it you're going to have to read in the book. Uh, I would love to take questions if you would come to the microphones. And if you don't take questions, I'm going to start calling on you. <laughs> First off, did you actually mention what uh, Plessy's race was, actually? You know, I didn't complete that loop, did I? <laughs> so it's, I, I went to the archives, did the genealogy, read the baptismal records in French and Spanish. Plessy was probably, not that I think it's ever right to talk about percentage, but he was probably about one quarter. So why does a lawyer's call him one eighth? Well, either one, they believed it, or two, it served their purposes. The closer to white that he was, the more they could argue that he was white. But he was about, his parents were both mixed race. And the other fascinating thing about the Plessy family and most of the free people of color of New Orleans is he wasn't born into slavery in 1863. His parents weren't slaves. His grandparents weren't slaves. You have to go back to his great-grandmother on one side of his family to find anyone who was enslaved. And she was freed in 1779. So this is not a case of some group of people after the Civil War trying to get their rights. They've been trying to get their rights for much longer than that. Um, the question I had for you, I reread Plessy before tonight, and there was an argument in there um, that based on property rights that his reputation as a white man was property. That seems a very odd argument, and do you have any background on that? I do. Um, the argument by Albion Turget and the legal team, which included a, a New Orleans lawyer named jo James Walker, was a case of, uh, Turget wrote to Walker early on in their strategizing and said, you know, it's better to throw too many arguments at them and, than too few, because they often criticize for leaving things out. Well, to use a cliche, Turget threw the kitchen sink at them. He threw so many arguments at them that they couldn't even address them all, and they didn't. And one of his arguments, a very clever argument was, is that he knew that the justices were largely men who cared about property rights. So he hunted for a property right. And what he discovered, what he, what he felt he had discovered was, is that your race is your reputation. Your reputation is your property. And that if you can pass, this is actually what he argued in his brief, if you can pass for white, then nobody should be able to take away that property without due process. And the conductor was not conducting any due process in his split-second decision as he's walking down the aisle. Well, this is not a really a great argument if you're black. I mean, it might have worked for Plessy, but as I said in the book, let's say that that argument had been successful. Separation would have lived on. It just would have been a mixed-race car and a white car and then a black car. But like a lot of lawyers, Turgeon wanted to win. And so he thought this was a winning argument. It turned out that the, the court didn't really pay much attention to it. I wanted to kind of continue to talk about Turgeon. I, I read the book. It's wonderful. Thank you very much. And I just wanted to um, get the sense from you beyond the non-judgmental author. Do you think Turgeon was up to it? I mean, was he the guy who should have got it done or was he totally... Out of his death, I don't think it was happen. a winning case, no matter who the, the, the lawyer was. I do think he was up to it, but I think his strategy, as I say in the book, is kind of cockamamie. 
Um, he should have focused on something, not about everything. The, the argument that almost got Brown's attention was the argument, it's a very good argument, there is no definition for colored in the Louisiana law. Well, wait a minute. Then what is Plessy? How could you enforce a law where there's no definition? There were definitions in other states, and as I outlined in the book, they varied greatly. In fact, James Walker had a great time with this in his brief. You know, in one state it's one quarter, in another state it's one sixteenth, in another state it's only if your grandparent is this, that, or the other thing. And that's an argument that Brown said another court should address at another time. But it seemed to me in reading Brown's decision, which is an awful decision, he goes way beyond where he needs to go and says things that earn him the, uh, the words of a historian calling him basically cruel and stupid. Uh, but it seems to me that they were always going to decide this case on the basis of Louisiana's powers and that they were never going to accept the 13th and 14th Amendment arguments. The 13th Amendment argument is an interesting one. What Turgeon said was that the 13th Amendment not only abolishes slavery, it also abolishes any badge of servitude. And he said, what is banishment to a separate car other than a badge of inferiority? Makes sense to me. But Brown said, I don't even understand why you're making this argument. This is a slavery amendment. It's not about railroad cars. Harlan not only accepted the argument, he embraced it. He said exactly what I just said before. Of course that's what it is. That's where, the, that's where that phrase, thin disguise, came from. That's the context in which he used those words. Were there efforts in other states following uh, Plessy versus Ferguson to upend uh, the, the, the separation? Um, and how did Plessy, second question, I guess, how did, how did Plessy then kind of propagate uh, thereafter in terms of protecting separation in other states or kind of, um, uh, uh, in, you know, creating the Jim Crow doctrine? Well, this is a sequel that I haven't written yet. Yeah. <laughs> the book ends with, with Brown's death uh, in, in 1915. Uh, but I'll answer your question to the best of my expertise, which is that, let me take a second half of it first. Um, the Plessy case, as I said, was unlikely to be decided any other way. But if it's a missed opportunity because by deciding it the way they did, they opened the doors to other states to enact similar laws. I'm always fascinated by the use of, if you, I, I get Google alerts with the word Plessy. It brings me more than I would like. And it's often used incorrectly. It says uh, the Supreme Court established the doctrine of separate but equal in Plessy, which it kind of did. Uh, sanction would be better verb in my view. And made it the law of the land. Now anybody who knows anything about the Supreme Court would know that the Supreme Court cannot declare something on, on a state's rights basis to be the law of the land. It can only declare that that state didn't violate the Constitution. So that opened the door to other states and most of the rest of the South did enact separate car laws right away. The last, interestingly enough, since it often gets bad press for its racial history, was South Carolina. And one of the debates there in the newspapers was, we don't need to have a law to tell us how to handle our colored people. We get along with them just fine. They know their place. So they didn't think they needed a separate car law. But eventually they did pass it. Uh, 
Of course, the North wasn't exempt from, from separation and segregation either. So I think that by, if it wasn't Plessy, it would have been another case. By not acting, and the Supreme Court, as I said, would probably not have acted, there was nothing to stop separation from spreading and segregation to become a system. You also can't tell the story without the violence that's involved. Uh, lynching in the South begins in the 1880s in a, in a major way. It has continued throughout the Plessy period and into the 20th century. This, the uh, Congress has a couple of tries at enacting uh, laws to stop it <coughs> because the states aren't prosecuting, they aren't checking it. Uh, the House passes a bill three times, the Senate never passes a bill. So you have a situation where resistance is difficult because the violence that has become a norm there makes it pretty hard to be courageous. It's a century and a quarter later. If, the, if Plessy had been decided differently, where do you think we might be today? And, and taking the lens out a little bit, what, what, what lessons do we have from your, from your book about how to proceed today? Well, I don't give you any lessons in the book. I kind of let you draw your own conclusions. I don't want to mislead anybody about that. But, you know, Plessy, if, if it hadn't been decided that way in Plessy, it would have probably been decided that way in some other way because that's where the court had been. But let's say that the court had decided differently, not in Plessy, but in the civil rights cases. Now, I don't want to go into a whole other story, although you can read about it in the book, but the civil rights cases were a combining of five cases that came out of the Civil Rights Act of 1875, which had opened public accommodations of all kinds and public amusements, as they called them in those days, to people of color equally with people who were white. The court decided that that law went too far because the 14th Amendment, if you read it narrowly, says that the states cannot abridge the rights of people on the basis of color. But that leaves out corporations, individuals, and they felt that the Civil Rights Act of 1875 had gone too far. Now, politically, this was really an interesting moment because the Congress understood, the radical Republicans, it, again, I've said before that the 19th century is very different. The president was not the most important person in the country from 1865 to 1875. The Congress was. Congress was really running the country. And the senators, uh, Sumner, Lyman Turnbull, people who had written these laws, they saw that the amendments themselves weren't enough. And so if you look at those amendments today, they say, and Congress shall have the power to enact legislation to enforce these laws. Now that sounds to us like boilerplate. No way it was boilerplate. This was them saying, we're going to keep doing this, which is not, we now we have the amendment we need to make it constitutional. The Supreme Court thought that they were going too fast. And they re re reined them in, and they did it by declaring the, the uh, 85, the 75 Act unconstitutional. Had they not done that, had they found a, a broader definition for the 14th Amendment, I think we would have embraced the notion of equal protection much earlier. Now, how that would have played out, now we're talking about an alternate universe that I probably am not capable of, of discussing. Um, but today, I think that we, you know, we still are feeling the reverberations of Plessy, and as I wrote in an op-ed this morning, uh, you know, racial history in America has never changed swiftly or fa or uh, or easily, and so that's why all of these things are are struggles. 
you know, white people are afraid of having their political power taken away from them in the 1870s. White supremacy comes out of that. Yes, it comes out of racism, but it comes out of a feeling of economic and political loss that they suffered in the Civil War. And they're going to get it back. And that's what they do. And that's what they're doing now. Thank you for your talk. Uh, before cases get to the Supreme Court, uh, they get to a trial court. And I understand that Plessy was meant uh, to be a test case. But I was wondering, uh, did uh, the lawyers uh, in Plessy versus Ferguson make uh, any attempt to make a case that the car for uh, the, to challenge on the grounds that the cars for the colored and the car for the white uh, were not equal uh, at all. They didn't make much of an effort, and it's been one of the things that lawyers and legal scholars and constitutional historians have criticized Turgé and his team for, is that they should have made a bigger argument about that. I don't think it would have worked, but they, they didn't make that argument very well. Uh, you're right that there was a trial court. Uh, if you promise to buy the book anyway, I will tell you a little more. <laughs> but the trial court, it was, it, it was interesting because the... They, they wanted to get the case to the Supreme Court, so they had to position it a certain way. And they went through several months and almost a year of trying to figure out how to make it a habeas corpus case, which means that habeas corpus is when somebody is in, is in jail and you can't get them out and, they, and you're arguing that they're there illegally. Well, the problem was is that they didn't want Plessy in jail <laughs> because that was a, basically a little bit more than he had volunteered for. But he, he was willing to do it. But they figured out a way to make it a case that was based on an error of the trial judge. That is, their allegation that it was an error of the trial judge. So the trial judge kind of helps them out. He delays a trial. He rules on the constitutionality of the Louisiana law. And that's the basis on which the case goes forward. It's, a, it, it's really a, an amazingly interesting strategy uh, that I outline, I think, in a very narrative way. I mean, because there are cameras back at that time. Yeah, that's right. We, lots of witnesses. There's, there's, there's transcripts. And, the Massachusetts, if the car for the blacks was called the refuse car, I would think that the car in the uh, Well, was, the railroads argued that these cars were equal. The, the, the first regulatory agency in the country is the Interstate Commerce Commission. It was created to regulate freight. And in his first year, it took two cases from black passengers who said we weren't treated equally. And they went into great detail, these railroads, saying the cars were manufactured in the same place, they have the same upholstery, they're in the same condition. And of course, everybody who rode those cars, the people of color, said, have you ever been in one of these cars? There's smoking going on, there's drinking going on, there's stains on the upholstery. It may have been manufactured in the same place, but it hasn't been maintained in the same way. Like you said earlier, um, we haven't gotten rid of racism in America. And um, a lot of people are saying that Trump's base didn't want to have to name he who must not be named. But most of them are like baby boomers and that this is just generational. And, you know, once they age, things will get better. But like you said, you know, this has been going on forever. And so you think maybe it's more sociological human nature that it's going to be something we deal with forever, just packaged differently? I hope not. <laughs> um, <clears throat> this is going to sound like I'm being um, shallow and superficial, but I went to a college reunion some years ago now, and I picked up the newspaper that I used to work on, and the lead of the story was a quote from, from a woman about 
the dating situation, which is kind of odd, the dating situation on campus. And she said, I've dated the United Colors of Benetton. And actually, I think that's kind of a profound statement. I mean, I thought, wow. I mean, if that becomes commonplace, of course, she is identifying them by labels in a way by even saying <laughs> it under that umbrella. But I don't think young people see race the way that people my age see race. And that's a hopeful sign to me. I know that's not really an answer to your question. Kind of. <laughs> but. Uh, my question is sort of a history of the Supreme Court uh, type question. Uh, you, you made the point early on that um, at the time of the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, kind of the Constitution and the nation, so to speak, was at its most kind of progressive uh, position on uh, race and so forth. And that over the course of the decades up to Plessy, um, that it was Supreme Court decisions that kept kind of narrowing that progressivism. And um, so my question is, um, does that narrowing reflect an increasing politicization of the Supreme Court over that period, over that part of the 19th century? You're, you're asking a very good question. I'm gonna give you an answer that is based in, I'm gonna say, about 20% of the research that one would really need to do if you were looking at the politicization of the court or that question. But what my impression was of the court was is that it was not an ideological court. It was a political party court. That is, there were Democrats and Republicans. Right. But from 1862 to, um, how late was it? There were no Democrats put on the court because the Republicans were in charge all of the time. Right. And Northerners dominated the court. When Harlan was nominated by Hayes, as Hayes was the one who ended Reconstruction, withdrew federal troops from the South in a deal that, you remember the famous 1876 Hayes Tilden election that was thrown to the House of Representatives. By the way, the way they resolved that election was to, the Congress enacted a law that created a commission, five Democrats, five Republicans, and five Supreme Court justices. Totally unconstitutional. I mean, it's just clearly a, a violation Mixing of separate power. Right, yeah. and, and Hayes, in his diary, said so. He said, you know, I don't want to touch this, but whatever they decide is the way we're going to do this, because that's what they decided to do. But the court, first of all, the president didn't see the court as a way to establish an ideology. The president saw the Supreme Court nominations as a way to curry favor with the senators. So they always consulted the senators. And when Brown was nominated in 1890, it was because it was Michigan's turn. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to know what Michigan senators kind of wanted and whether that would coincide with what he kind of wanted. So it wasn't really, the, it was definitely not the kind of uh, attempt to make the court more liberal or make the court more conservative. Mm -hmm. Now, these were all men, men of property mm -hmm. and all part of the elite and all part of the wealthy class. So already you have built into who they are their views. Mm -hmm. So if they're Republican, they're not necessarily radical Republican. And if they're Democrat, they're not necessarily the worst, most radical Democrats. So I think the court was a very different one. And, and they, they, they paid close attention, close attention to public opinion. I don't mean they followed it, but they didn't want to be out ahead. They wanted mm -hmm. to slow things down. And they, they definitely saw the radical Republicans that I spoke of, the Sumners mm. and the Turnbulls, as being too radical for the country. Mm. So they were the break. Maybe that's the way they saw their separation of powers. 
we're the branch that's going to slow us down. Let's give one last round of applause to our author. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.